You're listening to sermons from Redeemer Church in Round Rock, Texas. Redeemer is a gospel-centered, missional family learning and living the way of Jesus in the suburbs of Austin. Well, a couple of months ago, uh, Jordan called me and was like, hey, dude, I'd love for you to preach. Uh, In a couple of months, uh, there's this particular passage in 1 Corinthians that I think is like fitting for you because of what you do. And so, For those that don't know, uh, Redeemer has partnered with Young Life for uh, a really, really long time as kind of just a friend of what we do, a supporter of what we do. And the mission of Young Life is introducing adolescents to Jesus Christ, helping them grow in their faith, and walking alongside them in friendship regardless of their response. And so the gap that we fill in our community is that every May about, you know, from Round Rock High School, say in particular, about a, you know, 800 kids walk the stage and graduate and go off into college, and the vast majority of those kids have not encountered Jesus and are not following Jesus, and in Young Life, we feel like that's not okay, and the best way that we do that is we go to them and meet them where they are, and so Young Life's not built on some program to kind of fill the room, but it's built on relationships, and we do that with high school students in town, and we do that with teen moms in town across the city. And so Jordan was like, hey, this is kind of like what you do for a profession is evangelism. I think you should talk about this. And the funny thing is, is that uh, I really like don't stand before you as a professional evangelizer uh, or an expert. Uh, I would tell you that I actually think that I'm pretty good at like showing up in the lives of high school students at Round Rock High School, uh, but I rarely have ever do it well with my neighbors that I feel like I'm really good in some places and really bad in others. Another way of saying that is I feel like I'm really inconsistent. And the reality is, is probably you feel that way as well. Like evangelism is one of those interesting things. It's a loaded word both inside and outside the church that carries a ton of emotion and stories and phrases and images that kind of pop in our mind when we think about evangelism, some good some bad and probably some really, really ugly. Uh, I think of evangelism kind of like prayer. It's one of those things that we as Christians know is really important, something we know that we should do, something we know we should do more of, but ain't nobody raising their hand saying like, hey, I'm an expert at prayer. Come listen to me. Fills that way with evangelism. Like we we know that it's important. We know that the, the, the gospel calls us to do that. We, we know that we should. We know we probably should do it more, but nobody's raising their hand saying, man, I'm incredibly good at this. And so I think as we kind of wade into the conversation around evangelism, I think if we're going to have an honest conversation around it in a clear way forward, we've kind of got to address kind of head on some of the connotations that come with evangelism. That there are just some pictures, again, images, stories that come with evangelism that I feel like we've got to address. And so here's what we're going to do. This is risky, and if y'all don't participate, it'll be awkward for both of us. Um, But there's this game, it's called First Word. Has anybody ever heard this game? It it might be something different. Maybe, Maybe you have a different title for it. But it's the game where somebody says a random word. And then they, the person that's in the room has to say the very first thing that comes to their mind. 
Like you can't think about it. You can't process it. It's like, hey, here's the word. And then you respond really quickly. If you've played this game, there's a couple of things you should know. One, it's dangerous. And two, you usually learn something about that person that you probably wish you didn't know about that person, <laughs> right? And so uh, we're gonna do a version of that, but that's a little bit safer because uh, I don't wanna embarrass any of you. And so here's what I'm gonna ask you to do just for a second. I want you to close your eyes. Kids in the room, if you're like, I've always wanted to nap in church and want nobody to know that I'm napping, this is your opportunity. Uh, close your eyes, and here's, here's what I want you to do. Uh, I am going to say, and right now I'm going to say the word evangelism. And when I say that word, I want you to kind of capture images, stories, memories, emotions. What are the things that come to mind? What are the things that kind of flood your mind as you hear the word evangelism. All right. Now, here's the risky part. Would anybody be willing to share what came to mind? This is like interactive. So normally you just sit and listen, but you're going to talk today. So Interactive, like if you're Robert Riley and love talking out loud, like this is, your, this is your chance. This is your chance. Share out loud, like what are some things? Again, good, bad, and ugly, safe place. Good, bad, and ugly, some things that came to mind. Dave. Obedience. Obedience. Intimidating. Intimidating. Annoyance. Annoyance. <laughs> I got a good one for you. Yeah. Boldness. Boldness. Billy Graham. Billy Graham, love it. Yeah. I thought of like a street corner. Like a yep, yep. Crusade. Anybody else? Say that again. Mission trips, absolutely. Persuasion. Persuasion. Say that again. Outreach. Outreach. Spirit filled. Okay, say that again. Church camp. Preach. Man, y'all are nicer than me. I did, this, I did this on my own. I was like, I'm going to just think about it. And I think I have some slides for you. Here's some things that came to mind. Here's the first one, right? Kind of what Lauren said. Like standing on the street corner, coming in hot, pun intended, get it? Uh, like, hey, you're, hey, you want to know where you're going to go? I'll tell you what you deserve. You deserve hell, right? This is kind of what I'm thinking about. Or this one always confuses me. Are you born again? It's like if you're talking to people that are outside the church and don't know church lingo, this is like real confusing and really weird, right? Uh, so this is kind of one of the things that comes to mind. The other thing that comes to mind for me is this, this little, here we go, John 3.16, everywhere, right? Like at every sporting event, now it's at golf as well. Uh, you see these bright neon posters they bought from Walmart that say John 3.16. Uh, and, then, and then I'm like, if you know me at all, I've never used a meme in my life, but I was like, surely there's got to be some epic memes about this. So here's one. I'm a, I'm a big fan of this guy and taken. I don't know who you are, but I will find you and I will preach to you, right? It's like, you're super intense. And then this one, I also like a lot. Evangelism. At that time, you're telling people crap they don't want to hear at a time they don't want to hear it. It's like, yes, these are the things that come to mind, a personal story of mine. Uh, we're on a charter bus heading to Colorado for Young Life Camp. <clears throat> Again, Young Life Camp is primarily groups of disinterested, spiritually disinterested high school students. And we've spent 
years getting to know them and build friendships with them. And we get to take them to summer camp and we're like, can't wait for summer camp. And we pile up on the bus and we're heading to Colorado. We stopped for dinner on the way to Colorado. And I'm like, all right, guys, y'all got 45 minutes. Go eat. When you're done, get back on the bus and we're going to hit the road. Well, I get back to the bus like 30 minutes later just to kind of do an initial cleaning, make sure that the bus kind of looks somewhat okay. I walk on the bus and then I turn down the aisle of this bus and it is littered with tracks, gospel tracks all over the ground. And I'm like, what is happening? And the bus driver is like kind of awkwardly looking out the window. So clearly she was the culprit of this. And so I'm like, oh, this is a nightmare. And so I'm like, ma'am, I'm like, no offense, but they're going to be back on this bus in 15 minutes and every single one of these things got to be picked up. So you and I, like hands and feet, we're on the ground, like crawling under chairs, picking up all these gospel tracks. So we go, after, go at it for like 10 minutes. We like swoop them all up, put them back in her little gospel track bag. And uh, we hit the road and I'm sitting in the front seat and I'm like, oh my gosh, <sighs> it was so close. Like how awkward that would that have been? We get these, these kids we've built these friendships with and then they're like, oh, their whole point was to trap us in a bus and then give us gospel tracks. Um, and I'm like, we escaped it. And then like within seconds, one of my high school buddies is like, yo, Austin, look what I found on the ground. Hey, y'all see this? And then start passing around this one gospel track that we didn't get. And I'm like, oh no, we just ruined it. And so I have this like image of, that and these images of these people standing on corners and it could be good, it could be bad, whatever they may be for you, we all have some sort of baggage with evangelism. Stories, emotions, thoughts, some good, some bad, some life-changing and some traumatic and a lot in between. But before we jump into the passage, I think that remembering the audience of this letter is crucial before we talk about evangelism. To, to stop and pay attention to the audience, I think, is what Paul is wanting us to do. I think he's wanting to kind of stop us in our tracks because I think it's kind of crazy that he's talking to the Corinthian church about evangelism. And I think he does it to kind of dispel some of our kind of immediate reflex reactions when it comes to evangelism, things like, hey, I'm just not good at it. Like I would do evangelism, I would tell more people about Jesus, but I'm just not good at it. Or, uh, man, I feel like I'm just not good like with words. So being an evangelizer and evangelizing just feels like it's just not in my wheelhouse. Or I don't have the gift of evangelism like that person. That person in my church, my friend, they clearly have the gift of evangelism. I don't, and so I guess I just can't do it. What if I don't know the right answer? Like if I start to get into a theological debate with this person and I don't know enough information, I just feel like it's gonna go bad. I'm introverted, kind of socially awkward. So evangelism sounds like hell on earth. If you only knew me, Austin, I'm just not qualified. My life's a mess. I'm addicted to things that I'm not wanting to share. I'm full of shame. I have skeletons in my closet and you're telling me to go evangelize? No chance. 
My life is crumbled before my eyes. And I'm living in the ruins of my life. And you're telling me that I can go evangelize? No chance. I'm riddled with anxiety and fear. What do I have to offer? Austin, there's no chance that I could evangelize. I'm not qualified. And friends, I hear you. I've got skeletons. I've got anxieties and fears. Fill in the blank. But we cannot lose sight of the audience. The Corinthian church is an absolute dumpster fire. They are a hot mess of people that are bickering and dividing over stupid stuff, that are confused about the who, when, where, and why of sex, that their gatherings are marked with chaos and selfishness. They have these massive questions and confusion around the resurrection. They're an absolute mess, and yet Paul is coaching them on evangelizing. And I think what he's trying to tell us is anybody can do it. Anybody can do it. See, what I believe Paul's going to do in the next few verses is help us to reimagine evangelism not as a should do, but a get to. And my hope is that this morning we would simplify evangelism, that we'd dispel some connotations with it, and that maybe, just maybe, the Spirit of God would make you feel like you can do it. Because the reality is, is that you can. And the reality is, is you're probably better at it than you realize. So, now we're here. 1 Corinthians 9, 19. Paul says, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I may win more of them. So what Paul is going to do right off the bat, which he's kind of been doing throughout this whole couple of chapters and section of Scripture, chapters kind of 8 through 10, is he's kind of going to make this point, hey, I'm an apostle. And because, I have an, because I'm an apostle, I have rights. And yet, I'm willing to lay those rights down for the good of others. I have these given rights to me because I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ, but I live a life in which I continually lay these rights down for the good of those around me. And he wants, he wants his, his audience and he wants us, he wants to, us to be reminded of something here. And he's going to make that super clear at the end of this section. So again, chapters 8 through 10 is kind of a very clear section of this Book And here's the premise of those chapters. You and I have rights as Christians, but in love, we lay those down for the good of others. Food. Yeah, you can eat whatever you want to eat, but don't if it's going to make a brother or sister stumble. Yeah, you have rights. You have things and freedoms you have as a Christian that you can do, but you have to always be willing to lay those down out of love and good for others around you. And it's almost like he spends these three chapters talking through this, and at the end of it, he's like, okay, I've just said a lot. 
How do I land the plane? How do I summarize and simplify what I just said? And he gets to chapter 10, actually chapter 11, verse 1. And all he can get out to summarize and simplify is this. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. He spent the last two chapters showing how he was an apostle willing to lay his life down, but he wants his audience to know, hey, it's not about me. I am simply following in the footsteps of my Jesus. Why am I willing to do that? Why can't I do it? Because I just watched Jesus do it. I'm simply following in the footsteps of Jesus. So, so when Paul begins to kind of get into the particulars of evangelism in these next couple of verses and how he did it, his intention is for us to look beyond him to Jesus. He wants to lift our eyes up and say, yeah, this is what I did, but all of this is pointing to the life and the work and the character of Jesus. That if we want to know how to do evangelism, we don't predominantly look at Paul, we look at Jesus, the one who did it perfectly. And so he jumps in to verse 20 in chapter 9. And he says, To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. And to those under the law I became as one under the law, though not myself being under the law, that I might win those under the law. And to those outside the law I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. And to the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. And I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. And I do it for the sake of the gospel, that I might share with them in its blessings. So Paul starts big picture. I'm free from all, but I've become a servant to all. And he begins to get into some particulars. To the Jews, I became a Jew. To those under the law, I became as those under the law. To those outside the law, I became those as well. To the weak, I became weak. And then he kind of has this summary statement right at the end. I could go on, the list could go on, but here's essentially it. I became all things to all people so that I might save some. And as Paul repeats this sentiment over and over and over again, in these very specific kind of contextualized ways, it begs the question, what does it mean to become all things to all people for the sake of them encountering Jesus? What does that mean? Maybe another way of asking that question is what does it mean to contextualize the gospel? What does it mean to take the good news that you and I have heard and experienced, but really Make it good news for the next person, for the neighbor, for the coworker, for the soccer mom, soccer dad. What does it look like to contextualize the gospel? What does it look like to become all things to all people for the sake of them encountering Jesus? And friends, how we answer this question is crucial to us reimagining what evangelism could look like. And like I said earlier, I believe that Paul's intention is for us to look beyond him to Jesus, to look beyond the life of Paul to the life of Jesus and take a look at how he did it. 
the one who did it perfectly. The one who never went back on any convictions, who never compromised truth, who never morphed into the culture and society around him. One that became all things to all people and yet stood out as one who was intriguingly different. As a mentor of mine said, one who lived a surprising life. And all for the sake of folks encountering him and his transformative love. And so what I want to do is I want to take a look at an encounter that Jesus has. It's one of my favorites. And the point of me going to this encounter is not to give you like a three-step process to evangelism. Number one, I just don't think there's one. I don't think it's helpful. Because evangelism for me will look different than for you. Because we're all wired differently. We all will approach this differently. So if I try to give you a three-step process, it's just not going to be helpful. So my hope is that you and I would just get to fix our eyes on Jesus. And as we watch his life and his interactions unfold, that maybe we would be inspired about what that could look like in our life. And what I love about the life of Jesus is it's real simple. He kind of simplifies most things for us to understand, and I think it's the same with evangelism. So it's in Luke chapter 19. It's the story of Jesus and Zacchaeus. You may or may not be familiar, familiar with it, but again, it's one of my favorites of all time for a lot of different reasons. It says this, it says, Jesus entered Jericho and he was passing through and there was a man there named Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was the chief tax collector and he was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was. So Jesus is heading through Jericho with a crowd of people. There would have been a buzz around Jesus. He had just healed a blind beggar. And he's walking into the city of Jericho with the intention of passing through Jericho. Don't miss that. And I imagine kind of this crowd that is kind of rallied around Jesus, hanging on every word, wanting to see what he has to say and do, runs on ahead into Jericho and begins to announce to the city of Jericho, Jesus is coming. This is later in Jesus's ministry. So likely the word about Jesus has got out. And so they're running through the cities of Jericho or the streets of Jericho saying, hey, Jesus is coming, get ready. And we're introduced to this man in Jericho named Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus would have been known in Jericho. He also would have been absolutely hated in Jericho. He's a chief tax collector, and he's rich. They would have gone hand in hand. He made his profession at knocking on doors and taking more money than the Roman government asked him to take, pocketing in it, then taking money off the top of all the tax collectors that worked for him, but the worst part about him was he was a traitor. See, he was funding the government that was oppressing the people, the Jewish people. And so as he knocked on the doors and took their money, it wasn't just that you're stealing from me, but you've turned your back on me and you are the reason that some of my family is dead because the government that's oppressing and killing my family and my people is being funded by your profession. He would have been infamous in the town, but for all the wrong reasons. And it says that he was seeking to see Jesus, Jesus was. Different sermon, but it's interesting. He's rich and he's powerful, but he's still seeking. 
And I got all the power, all the money. Not content. Heard the murmurs of Jesus. I got to get my eyes on him. But there was a problem. It says he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small of stature. So he ran on ahead and he climbed up into a sycamore tree to see Jesus. For he was about to pass that way. I imagine him being super excited. Jesus is in town. He can't wait to get to Jesus. He runs out his door and then he realizes, dang, I'm short. <laughs> like, I, I, there's not a chance I'm seeing over these people. It's too crowded for me to kind of get through them. There's an issue. And when, I, when he says he's short, like the average height of a, of a Jewish man in that day and age was five and a half. So the, fu- the funny thing is, it's like they made it a point that he was short, like brother was in his forefoot, right? He was like small. And he runs out and he's like, problem. But he's pretty, he's deceitful, deceptive, crafty. So he begins to kind of think, I know the road that Jesus is going to walk down. So my plan is I'm going to run up ahead of him and I'm going to hop in a tree to get my eyes on him. Now, I don't know this, but here's my guess. He wanted to see Jesus. He did not want Jesus to see him. Full of shame. He knew his record. This religious guy is in town. I know how the religious people treat me. Nervous, I kind of want to see him, get my eyes on him, see what all the kind of talk is, the murmur is about this guy. But man, I do not want him to see me. Sounds like my worst nightmare. And it comes true. It says, when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and he said, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So Jesus walks, walking down the path, and he kind of gets to the corner where the tree is, and he stops in his tracks again. He is passing through until I imagine the Spirit of God whispers in his ear, look up. And because he listens to the Father's voice, he looks up and he sees Zacchaeus. We don't know their history, but he calls him by name. The story lands different if Jesus walks over the tree, he's like, Hey, you. Doesn't feel personal. Zacchaeus doesn't feel valued, dignified, cared about, seen. And he looks up to Zacchaeus and he says, Hey, Zacchaeus, dinner's at your place tonight. Let's go. I don't know what Zacchaeus would have felt in this moment, maybe confused, maybe bewildered eventually joyfully receives Jesus. But I think it would have shocked him at first. And what I love about the life and ministry of Jesus, he didn't look up at Zacchaeus and say, hey, in a couple days, I've got a big revival happening down the road. I'm a great communicator. Come listen to me. Hey, we're doing this epic party. It's going to happen right down the road. Everybody that walks in gets like free shoes. We're trying to break a record. You should come hang out. Now, Jesus, his ministry and his life is not about an event or a program. 
It's about relationships. That when he calls Zacchaeus by name and says, I'm going over your house, what he's communicating to the whole crowd is, that's my friend. Because if I eat at his table, I'm with him. And he's with me. He doesn't start with a program. He doesn't start with an event. He starts with a relationship. Think about the disciples. A rabbi is usually followed around by people that want to be the disciples of that rabbi. And they kind of like submit their resume. And the rabbi reads through it and says, yay or nay. Not Jesus. He seeks out his disciples. Hey, I'm going to go to the sea where the fishermen hang out. Guys that are kind of overlooked, a little bit sloppy, drunks. I want them to be my disciples. And he initiates that. How about the, pool, the man at the pool of Bethesda? The part of town that's outside the city walls that nobody goes to, but not Jesus. Jesus goes out of his way, walks in, and walks straight up to the man who'd been an invalid for 38 years. Or the Samaritan woman. Jewish folks never went through Samaria. They took the long way around, but not Jesus. He walks right through Samaria because his father tells him he's got to go that way. And along the way, he meets this Samaritan woman. See, if you and I pull what are the most memorable encounters of Jesus, likely they are all these one-on-one encounters that he has with people because he is about relationships. That's what he is best at. Zacchaeus hurries down, and he receives Jesus joyfully. I imagine him kind of, kind of like squirming down the tree and then like, hey, come, come follow me. Here's my house. And they walk over, and they get into his house, and he's beginning to eat dinner with them. And it says, when the crowd saw it, they all grumbled. Jesus has gone into the house of the guest, to be the guest of a man who is a sinner primarily religious leaders that kind of just like being with their kind of people, their tribe. They kind of have these really thick walls around their life of I'm not going to hang out with that person, fill in the blank of who that might be. They have different theology than me, different ideology than me. Their view of gender and sexuality is different than me. Their view of, their, their view of politics is different than me. They don't fit into my tribe, and so I kind of just keep my distance. And Jesus says, no, not me. The guy that you hate, that you can't stand, that you wouldn't be caught dead with, yeah, he's the guy that I'm going to spend time with. See, Jesus sets no prerequisites for Zacchaeus to be with him. Jesus does not look in the tree of Zacchaeus and say, I need you to sell all your stuff and give all your stuff away. And once you do that, I'll come have dinner with you. That's not how Jesus works. Jesus, like he, he absolutely disagrees with the life of Zacchaeus, and yet he enters into his life with no prerequisites and no expectations other than to be with him. There's no reason that Jesus goes to Zacchaeus' house outside of a genuine love for Zacchaeus. And I believe that the primary reason that Jesus went to Zacchaeus' house was not salvation, but it was friendship. 
And when we aim for, for friendship, sometimes we get salvation. I believe that if we aim for evangelism, oftentimes we don't get friendship at all. Redeemer, are we going to be a people that look more like the religious leaders of that day? Or are we going to come up with a list of prerequisites around people and who they must be and what they must believe in order to be with Jesus or know Jesus? What kind of people are we going to be? People of judgment or people of love? People that build walls or people that draw circles and say everybody's in. If you look at the life of Jesus, that's what he did. He entered into every person's life, regardless of where they were, with the good news of his transformative love. It says, at the end of dinner, Zacchaeus stood up and he said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I've defrauded anyone or anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to his house. Since also he is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. See, we know that the story ends with Zacchaeus repenting, but the question that I always ask is what got him there? What got him from in the tree, a guy that was riddled with sin and evil, what got him over the course of a meal to begin to give all of his money away, repent? And follow Jesus. And the verse that comes to mind is that the kindness of God leads to repentance. That when I imagine that dinner of Jesus sitting with Zacchaeus, here's what I imagine. Zacchaeus, thanks for having me over. I really love being in your home. I would love to know more about you. Did you grow up in Jericho? Yeah, I've been here my whole life. And tell me about your family. Well, we grew up kind of poor, barely getting by. Leftovers and hand-me-downs. Zacchaeus, how was that, being a kid, dealing with that? It was really hard. What do you remember about it? I remember never having what my friends had. I stuck out like a sore thumb. My clothes were raggedy. And if you haven't noticed, I'm really short. Always have been. It was just more ammunition for kids in town. I got teased a lot, beat up. Zacchaeus, how did that make you feel? Angry, really angry. When did you decide to become a tax collector? A while ago, I've been doing it for a while now, so now I'm a chief tax collector. What first got you interested in being a tax collector, Zacchaeus? Well, I remember them showing up to our door. They would ask my parents for money, and my folks would pay them, and they would shut the door. But they would talk about how they were stealing our money, but that there was nothing that we could do about it. They said they were always the richest folks in town and some of the most powerful because they were employed by the Roman government. 
rich, powerful. Jesus, two things that I had never experienced in my life. Were those the first two things that caught your eyes, Zacchaeus? Yeah. I mean, if you're telling me that I could be rich and powerful, have all the things that I never had, that I could use this power to get revenge on all the people that made fun of me and beat me up, that sounds exactly like what I wanted. You've been doing that for a while now. Do you still like it, Zacchaeus? Not anymore. I feel lonely. I've got no friends. I don't feel like anybody cares. Nobody really knows me. Zacchaeus, I'm really sorry. I'm sorry that growing up you were picked on and beat up. I'm sorry that you feel alone, that you feel like nobody really knows you or cares about you. But I sure do. Are you looking for something more? Something better than what you're currently experiencing? Yeah, that sounds really nice, Jesus. Well, look no further, my friend. You have been running. It's time to come home. In a relationship with me, you were known and you were valued and you were deeply loved. And I can free you from all the anger and revenge that live inside of you. Really? Absolutely. Jesus, I think that I want to sell my stuff. I want to give it to the poor. I think I want to return the money that I've stolen. Zacchaeus, you know I love you even if you don't do any of that. Yeah, Jesus, I know. And that's why I want to do all of that. See, I don't know exactly how that conversation went. But if I look at the life of Jesus, I feel like it's got to be close to that. A man who takes the time to take a genuine interest in the life of this man that is broken, hurt, and far from him. To listen to his story, to seek friendship and understanding with somebody that he completely disagrees with but who would take the time to ask questions, who would take the time to enter in and listen, would take the time to empathize with another human. I cannot believe that the transformation that we see in Zacchaeus came from anything outside of the love and compassion of Jesus towards him. See, I said at the beginning that because Paul is writing about evangelism to the Corinthian church that is an absolute dumpster fire, he is making that point that anybody can evangelize. So think about this. After Zacchaeus encounters Jesus, who is the greatest evangelist in the city of Jericho? Zacchaeus. Is his life still a mess? Absolutely. <laughs> But what fuels him to be the greatest evangelist is what you and I and Zacchaeus all have in common. 
It's our story of transformation through the love and compassion of Jesus. I told you at the beginning, hey, we can all do it and you're better than you think because you have a story just like me. A story about how Jesus powerfully met you, changed your life. And it's that story that Jesus wants to use to draw other people to him. It's not a bunch of answers. It is your story, your love, your compassion that is created from that story. It's the story of Jesus becoming flesh and moving in to the neighborhood, leaving heaven because his love for us could not hold him back. And so he draws near to us and walks alongside the very ones that he created. He walks alongside us, not with a wagging finger of accusation or condemnation, but with an open arms of love, grace, and compassion. A savior that sympathizes. A savior that saw you and I at our very worst and didn't run away, but actually drew near to us. He runs to us like the father ran to the prodigal son. He hugs us and he receives the filth and the smell and the dirty pig pen stained lives that we have so that he can close us with the best robe, best sandals, and best rings. Because he who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. Friends, this is all of our stories and we cannot forget them because if we forget our stories and how Jesus met us and is continuing to meet us in our weakness and in our need, then I think that we lose our greatest asset for evangelism. That if we forget our desperate need of Jesus, we lose our gratitude and love for Jesus. And if we lose our gratitude and love for Jesus, we have lost what empowers us to actually be great at evangelism. I'm old school, I should have this on the screen, but here's a quote from Brennan Manning. These sinners, these people that you despise are nearer to God than you. It is not the hookers and the thieves who find it most difficult to repent. It is you who are so secure in your piety and pretense that you have no need of conversion. They, have, they may have disobeyed God's call. Their professions have debased them, but they have shown sorrow and repentance. But more than any of that, these are the people who appreciate his goodness. They are parading into the kingdom before you, for they have what you lack, a deep gratitude of God's love and a deep wonder of his mercy. It is no accident that when Mark and Luke list out the 12 apostles in their gospels, they call Matthew, Matthew. But when Matthew lists out the 12 apostles in his gospels, he refers to himself as Matthew, the tax collector. It is no accident that when Jesus heals the man at the pool of Bethesda, he tells him to take his mat with him. Brother does not need his mat anymore. Jesus is saying, remember. Remember this moment. In other words, don't forget what I have done and what I am doing for you. 
What if the greatest asset in our evangelism is not a life that has seemed all put together, but rather our need for Jesus? What if when we lose our sense of our need for Jesus, we actually lose our effectiveness to evangelize? What if we were a people marked by our deep gratitude for God's love and deep wonder at his mercy? That is transformative in the lives of people in our lives. And Paul wraps up this section in 24 through 27, and he lifts our eyes up and he says, run the race well, but run your race well. And your race is different than my race. Where has God given you influence, your neighbors, mom groups, coworkers, restaurant you go to a lot, parents of the kids that your kids play sports with or go to school with? God has put people right in front of you. Who are they? And what does it look like to enter into their life with no agenda other than friendship? That's evangelism. And my hope is that when I say the word evangelism or you hear the word evangelism moving forward, these images that I threw up would not pop to your mind, but rather a face or a name would come to mind. And that when you think about that face and when you think about that name, you would be reminded that you have all you need to be great at evangelism. You have the Spirit of God that gives you power. You have your story that gives you compassion. And you have the people that God has put in front of you that he's given you influence with. It's that simple. Don't overthink it. I'll read this last quote. The ministry of evangelism is an extraordinary opportunity of showing gratitude to Jesus by passing on his gospel of grace to others. However... The conversion by concussion method, with one sledgehammer blow of the Bible after another, betrays a basic disrespect for the dignity of the other and is utterly alien to the gospel imperative to bear witness. To evangelize a person is to say to him or her, you too are loved by God and the Lord Jesus. And not only to say it, but to really think it and to relate it to the man or woman so that they can sense it. This is what it means to announce the good news. But that becomes possible only by offering the person your friendship. A friendship that is real, unselfish, without condensation. Condensation. And full of confidence and profound esteem. So here's what I want you to do. I'm going to invite the band up real quick. And I'm going to ask them to kind of just play some instrumental music for a second. And as they do that, uh, I'm going to ask you to just kind of sit. And I'm going to give you a couple of thoughts or a couple maybe questions to consider. But I believe the Holy Spirit speaks. And I believe he has something to say to you this morning. It might not be anything that I said. But I want to give him the space to speak and for us to listen. And so as they just play kind of quiet instrumental music, here's a couple of things for you to think about. One is what is one thing that the Spirit wants you to take from this morning? What's one thing? Not a list of 25. What's what's one thing? A word, an exhortion, a phrase. 
When was the last time that you experienced Jesus' love and compassion towards you? person that Jesus is asking you to engage in friendship. One person that does not know him, that is not walking with him. Who is that one person that he's asking you to engage in friendship? thank you that evangelism is not as complicated as we make it. That you have given us power through your spirit. That you have given us compassion through our stories. And that you have put people right in front of us that we get to love and friendship pray that we would be a people that would be marked not by the flashy but by faithful friendships with those that do not know you and do not love you with patience that one day your kindness would lead to their repentance remind us that their greatest view of your kindness is probably going to be through us privilege, what a get to. We pray this in your name. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you are looking for info, find our website at RedeemerRR.org or download the Redeemer Round Rock app from the Android or iOS app store.